North South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to episode three of The Wrestler That Was. My name is Aaron, and we are breaking down the WWF slash WWE careers of retired wrestlers and seeing how they stack up against each other. Now, my credentials for doing this project, I mean, I have none. I'm just a dude talking in a microphone alone in his basement. Uh, but it does come from my project that was the year that was still found in the North-South Connection podcast archives, where I went back and watched every single WWF pay-per-view of all time, ranked the years, did a whole project on it. But, you know, I watched nearly, my God, it's got to be up to like 4,500 matches now for this thing. And it really gave me a good grasp of some of these guys' careers, at least in in terms of my opinions, right? So... I wanted to do something else with this information, and that's what the wrestler that was is. I am ranking these wrestlers in 10 categories, and that gives us a score out of 100. So nice and easy to understand. So far, we've done Jake the Snake Roberts, Razor Ramon, and today, we're delving in to the animal, Batista. And I'm going to hopefully, going forward, continue this... um, This trend of doing a guy from the 80s, doing a guy from the 90s, and then doing a guy from the 2000s. Now, I will be honest, 2000s is tricky because so many of these guys are not retired or you never know when they're going to come back kind of thing. So I really like to to finish up a guy, like really make sure his career is done. And Batista really seems to be done. I I wish um, you could see this dude's Wikipedia picture page because really it should be their entry for douchebag. Like, the look on this guy's face, he just looks like such an asshole. But Batista was the, was the man in the 2000s. If you, see, if you hated John Cena, he was the dude for you. Let's break him down, see where he lands on the wrestler that was. So, category one is narrative. And for narrative, I'm looking to see if his story makes sense across his career. Jake Roberts was a great example. Razor Ramon a bit less so. So, for Batista narrative, here we go. So a fine young man comes into the promotion under the tutelage of a reverend. And while this reverend's message was for everyone to simply testify, the message of this deacon was clear. He's going to carry that box and he will suffer no reverend cock. He will not have it here. He will not have it there. He will not have it anywhere. Now, the media will have you believe that the rift between reverend and deacon began with an accidental punch and a loss to Rikishi. But the truth is probably closer to a beleaguered Devon making countless advances on his young follower. After being shoved and bossed around for years by some dude named Bubba, Devon no doubt 
thought it was time for him to be doing some of the tabling. Thankfully, uh, they tabled the whole dumbass gimmick and bored us with the Dudley boys for another three years. And then for whatever reason, Batista shows up on Raw. He's just Batista now. Now, I'm not saying that's not 1,000 times better as a name or a gimmick, but they probably could have done with a better explanation uh, than, hey, this is me. This is my name now. Like, could at least one person have been like, hey, weren't you that guy who got molested? And Batista could have replied with like a, uh, no, 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 I'm 35 years old. I wanted to learn from that grizzled veteran of cock. But no, for some reason, I guess it's because we don't want the word molested uh, appearing on WWE programming. I'm sure Vince uh, would be like, there's no need to ban the word molested. We're entertainment. But keep in mind that entertainment once meant Triple H molesting a corpse on TV, throwing brains into the camera and then coming out next week and like being upset with the audience because they didn't really get the sense of humor. Oh, it's a joke. Anyway, Batista joins a stable with Triple H, Flair and Randy Orton. And they were to represent the past present and future of wrestling now yes he was 35 years old but the dude looked like a million bucks and we had never seen him before so he along with the 20 year old were the future and his role in this endeavor was to team with the past rick flair and win the tag team titles and for a while it kind of looked like batista might always be the distant third member of evolution but then triple h start gets on started getting on his case for losing to chris jericho and I guess in Hunter's mind, like anyone who loses to Chris Jericho is a colossal piece of shit and worthy of contempt and scorn. So Big Dave then starts showing contempt back. He's rolling his eyes at Hunter's boasts. He shows disgust as Ric Flair name drops Danny Hodge. Don't show him Danny Hodge. That's not what he fucking wants. Probably throwing furniture in the back because Randy Orton sits him down and forces him to watch League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Look, regardless of the reasons, he's slowly getting on the outs of this evolution group. Or is it... See, it always said evolution. Are they trying to make it sound evil? Evolution! Anyway. So, then he kind of becomes a definite threat for Triple H's world heavyweight title. And then the game, in turn, starts to insinuate, you know, maybe you shouldn't enter the Royal Rumble. That didn't work. Batista went on to win the Rumble and guarantee himself a spot right up front row for Vince tearing his quads. The Evolution, then Evolution tries to murder him with a limousine. Uh, this was pinned on JBL, kind of, kind of hoping that Batista would challenge him instead because he was the WWE champion at the time. Instead, Batista gives the whole group the thumbs down, turns on his former team, and then dethrones King H at WrestleMania 21. But then... Then he was afraid of the pedigree. Next, he was afraid of Hell in the Cell. And then once he was graciously allowed to beat Triple H three times in a row, moved right off the A-show. And then he goes to SmackDown and he rekindles the feud with JBL, despite JBL never having tried to murder him in the first place. And then he also made a little pal in Smiling Rey Mysterio. And then Mark Henry injured his ass. And I don't want to say anything bad about Mark Henry, but Mark Henry injured his ass. He was forced to forfeit the title and take time off to heal. Upon return, um, he fights a guy who likes to say his name twice, then chases a king and ruins one of the greatest monarchs known to man. He spends the better part of the next year trading wins with The Undertaker and Edge. Then he wins the title back, but must fight his way out of a Punjabi prison. 
He's kind of in a holding pattern uh, until 2008. Now, in 2008, he gets very angry at Shawn Michaels for beating and old yellering his mentor and former tag team partner, Ric Flair. So Batista gets fooled by a fake injury once, and their next meeting between he and Shawn Michaels ends with Shawn on a goddamn stretcher, which is exactly what you would imagine would happen if they fought in real life. And then the next year, he's kind of meandering a bit before he's had enough of smiling Ray, and then he beats the living shit out of him. And then he'd start messing with John Cena and was callously, callously jeered by the audience as he sat front and center in a wheelchair. The crowd was merciless. So he took off for four years. He made his triumphant return in early 2014 and did nothing to help the sale of skinny jeans anywhere. And look, he was declared the conquering face at the 2014 Royal Rumble. He was promptly booed, though, out of the building and consequently became relegated to fodder for both Daniel Bryan and The Shield. Then he takes off again, quits again. And after another five-year sabbatical, he comes back and demanded to be given what he wanted. He got it. He got his nose ring ripped out, uh, his face smashed in at WrestleMania 35, and then he left, despite losing, satisfied. So, I think the evolution stuff holds up pretty well in terms of narrative, but he's, he's a guy who's constantly lost in the shuffle. I mean, he's over enough that he's always needed at the top of the card, but that doesn't, that A doesn't always lead to B. Like, that's what a coherent story would do. And I think part of that problem is he's constantly being moved around. So it's not a cohesive story. After all he went through with Triple H and Orton, why would he reform Evolution in 2014? Why? Just because the fans are booing? Why was he mad at Triple H in 2019? It's a lot of bouncing uh, for the sake of bouncing, which is never good in a story. Like, you want your characters to have believable motivations and stuff. So I'm going to go five out of 10 for narrative, which is, I mean, about equal to Scott Hall, but Scott Hall was a different time. I feel like Batista could have been higher here. But how does he rank as a face? So Batista for me is not an obvious face at first. I mean, he's big. He looks mean. He's got a sun tattoo on his tummy. I mean, for all the people that were mad at Cody Rhodes for the fucking dumbass tattoo on his neck, at least he's pushing his brand. What's Batista supporting with the Ring of Sunshine? The actual sun? Vitamin D? The son of man? None of it makes any sense. We know we need vitamin D. We're all depressed. Of course we need vitamin D. Of course we need Jesus. Anyway, that being said, he gets way over in the fall of 2004. He's one of the... He's just like... In 2004, late 2004, you kind of think of 2005 of his year as his year, but I'd say towards the end of 2004... He's as big a babyface as I've seen in all my years watching wrestling. And I'm thinking legit Stone Cold Steve Austin level pops when he comes out. Maybe not Stone Cold Steve Evan, uh, Steve Austin's like max, but like he's getting Austin pops when he comes out. I'm talking legit cat taking off her top pops. I distinctly remember going to see a show in Montreal. I guess it was, a, it might've been a taping. It might've been a raw or something anyway. But the whole night, the crowd was chanting for the man. In fact, on the subway ride home, the chants of Batista continued all throughout the shittiest subway system in North America. This must have been extremely confusing for anyone who wasn't a wrestling fan. I mean, who on earth are we cheering for? Who's Batista? 
Were they longing for the days before Fidel Castro put Cuba under his mighty boot? Were they from the future and warning us that Jose Bautista would be a flash in the pan? Bautista was over huge. And as much as I may lament the the sun tattoo, which, look, in fairness, is unfortunate. I I don't know what happened. It makes you want to fuck his belly button. Like, it makes you want to tear that sun up. Because you want, everybody wants to fuck the sun. Let's not lie. Let's not lie to each other. We see that fucking giant ball in the air, and we imagine just penetrating it, right? And so when you see that sun tattoo, you're going to want to penetrate his tummy. I get it. Batista was big, cool. He he was a cool-looking dude, man. And he wasn't presented like an idiot on a show full of complete idiots. He outsmarted the game. No one ever got to do that. Like, imagine a wrestler, right? (laughs) Like, in this world, a dude just needs to watch last week's show to know that his friend is going to fuck him over, right? All they have to do is like, oh, did I DVR the show? Oh, wait a minute. No, he's going to kill me next week. No one ever does that. Batista is like, it feels like he's the first guy in the promotion to get a DVR. Like, had no wrestlers ever had access to a DVR or a VCR before 2005? Look, his ascension, though, Batista's ascension, felt like the next big star in the business. And he was bigger than Cena at the time. Cena was connecting well, right? But Batista connected on a visceral level. So, throughout my projects, I've kind of often mentioned, I have this kind of hypothesis, that viewers of a certain age that grew up with the product and the WWF, like like my age, right? I feel we grew up with the product and... The WWF smartly grew up with them. It's kind of like the Harry Potter books. How like when you read the Harry Potter books, book seven is using more, um, it's written more for a late teenager than it is a uh, kid who's just going into high school because you're growing up with the books, right? Um, So kids, I I mentioned this before, but I think it it pertains to him as well because I talked about it with Razor. But kids love superheroes in the 80s, so we got Hogan. these kids are teenagers in the 90s, so the company focused on cool characters like Bret Hart and Razor Ramon. In the late 90s, these kids are becoming adults, and so they're teeming with resentment for authority. And it's no wonder that Steve Austin and The Rock are huge. So by the mid-2000s, we're all well into adulthood, and I think, I think, especially, well, I think we all tend to lean towards, as we get older, we want wrestling to be a little bit more legitimate, And I think Batista brought that legitimacy. Like, MMA was peeling viewers away. And Batista was the kind of guy who looked like he could take them. Now, he didn't wrestle like an MMA fighter, but he embodied the attitude of the new sport. I think in essence, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I think in essence, the basis for the backlash of John Cena post-2006 is that there was nothing legitimate about him. See, Cena never screamed legitimate to adult males that were in their late 20s. He was an example of the company regressing back to catering to children again. So I, my, me and my buddy, uh, my buddy Reg, we always had this theory that like it would ebb and flow and it would like, so you're growing up with the product and then all of a sudden they're going to abruptly jump back down and market to kids so that they grow up again, which is actually a, a good strategy. It just sucks for someone who, who's followed it and wants the product to continue growing with them, right? Um, but it was a regression to go back to Cena. And I think this is why, not that Cena's bad, it's just his character is geared really towards children, right? And I think this is why he's booed out of every building and Batista was able to maintain his face run for five years. No one turned on Batista because he's scary as fuck 
And he looked like he could beat the living hell out of you. And he really got the face mannerisms down too. He looked like a real person that was reacting to same things, to regular things, right? Hell, even embodying the ultimate warrior as he shook the ropes, kept everyone engaged. He managed to stand up for what's right and not lose the fans. Cena was a goody-goody and people hated him. Batista was pissed at Shawn Michaels, one of their better babyfaces at the time, because he retired his mentor. And still, despite leaving the heartbreak kid a bloody, broken mess, Batista doesn't lose any popularity. Now, the counterpoint to all of this is that perhaps, had fans not been so angry at Cena, they may have tired of Batista's shtick. It's possible. But Cena did drive us to insanity, so we'll never know for sure. Look, all I know is on that night in Montreal, he pummeled these two French resistors, the two La Résistance guys. He stuck the Quebec flag in their ass, right? This is a crowd that cheered Dino Bravo like he was CM Punk in Chicago. He fucked up the French guys, desecrated the flag, and they still cheered Batista. If you can come into Quebec and do that and still be the most popular guy in the building, that's a special connection. Now, it's not like he didn't have a major failure as a face in 2014, but in truth, I don't blame him. He was merely an avatar for like a tone-deaf company who thought that branding someone as a B-plus player was a good idea and worthy of execution for months. So as a face, I'm going 8 out of 10 for Batista. He's the biggest star in the company for a while, and he could have been even bigger. We'll get to that. So as a heel, uh, how does he stand as a heel? Just so we're going, no, uh, going forward. If ever I run into a guy, and I will, who is not a heel or not a face, so like, think Ricky Steamboat, who is um, who is uh, only a face, or Rick Rude, who is always a heel. Clearest examples, right? Um, if they were never a, let's say, Ricky Steamboat, he's going to get a five as heel. I'm going to give him a gentleman's five, just right in the middle, because I don't want to punish him because he was never heel. Um, but if they're a bad heel or a bad face, that's where they get ding. Like Miz is probably going to eat shit as being a face when I get to him. If he ever fucking retires. Anyway, how is Batista as a heel? So do we do we punish a guy who couldn't stay heel? I say no. Because I think when he wanted to, Batista could be a total scumbag heel that rivals some of the greats. And I'm kind of curious if it's a reflection of how he is in real life. I mean, so pulling the curtain back a bit, he's one of these guys that I... I wouldn't want to follow too closely on Twitter because if your beliefs don't line up exactly with his, I think he can really come off as a sanctimonious prick. And maybe that's Hollywood rubbing off on him. I See, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this or not, um, but Hollywood stars, despite their cries for compassion at every turn, sour very quickly on you if you don't feel how they tell you to feel. I met Batista once uh, in a karaoke bar. It was, um, it was at the Raw. Uh, it was after the Raw. Remember Shawn Michaels played Bret Hart's music in Montreal and the place nearly shit their collective French pants? And most of the wrestlers came to this joint called Vocals. And it must have been a place they all went to because they had this mural on the wall of all these musicians. So like, you know, John Bon Jovi, uh, uh, Dee Snyder, Steven Tyler. Like It's just this really nice painted uh, mural. Of, and, and there's like maybe 60, 70 guys on it. Um, 
but one of the portraits on the wall was Pat Patterson. And I, you know, I was the only guy who knew what it was, me and my buddy who went there, you know, no one knew who this guy was, but anyway, they all came after the show. Uh, Batista was the biggest star there. He didn't sing. What he did do was uh, sit at the bar all night with a bottle of Cristal, refusing to speak to anyone, wearing sunglasses. It was weird. Not as weird as Matt Stryker asking my friend where he could go for unprotected anal, but that's a tale for a different day. I just think that there's probably some solid evidence that he has it in him to be a dick. Maybe he isn't, but he has it in him to be a dick, which I think you need to be an effective heel. So looking back at his heel run, I mean, Deacon Batista is really nothing. It's just a dude with a box, right? And I would also argue that his evolution run was pretty pedestrian in terms of quality heel character work. Now, it's not bad, but he's kind of the muscle, plain and simple. He did the job well enough, but there's nothing earth-shattering. But when he turns on Rey Mysterio onward, his heel work is top-notch. The entire, you were supposed to be my friend, stuff is incredible. <laughs> I mean, who turns on their much smaller, weaker, weaker friend? And clotheslines them into oblivion. And then he goes, going forward, he just becomes a guy who tells the truth. He hates that John Cena's kissing fat chicks. He hates that the company's gone soft. Jesus Christ, does he love the color blue, though. But, like, that whole narrative of, like, I should have been, I should have, um, I should have been the guy who carries the company, not you was based in reality because at the time he was getting better reactions. I think his 2010 stuff with Cena has a gear that I didn't think he had in him. But the, I mean, the other, the whole presentation of that character was a perfect storm of douchebaggery. The whole spotlight on him, the dumbass hats, his sheer contempt for everyone around him, sublime. In the end, I think he's a better face than a heel. In his career... Uh, there's a bit too much silent muscle and screaming, give me what I want. I don't know how he was the heel in that feud, but whatever. Uh, I just wish there was more of that 2010 run everywhere. Man, we had no idea how much we'd miss it going forward. So I'm going um, to give him a six for his heel work. So it's not horrible. I think it's good and solid. It's really bu- buoyed by, um, by that 2010 run. And it's hurt by the 2019 run. Because I think it's just stupid. Uh, let's rank his characters, though, before we move on. So, I got six characters, which I didn't expect for Batista. So, the worst one, I think, is Deacon Batista. I mean, has there ever been a successful religious gimmick? Man, like, Mordecai was whiter than Middle America, and he bombed. Friar Ferguson was almost immediately turned into a guy who would eat himself into a stupor. Dustin Rhodes thumped his Bible for three weeks before calmly taking the gun out of his mouth and slowly getting back into the gold suit, tears pouring down his face. Religious gimmicks just never work, and really, the Deacon Batista was nothing. All right, number five. This should probably be the last one, since Deacon Batista was nothing, but whatever. Number five is, give me what I want. That's the character. In 2019, he wanted to fight Triple H, a man... He has beaten and bludgeoned countless times. Every time. Every time they've fought. But this dude, Batista, stood on the ramp and screamed, Give me what I want. 
That was the character development. Why would he even want to fight this man again in storyline rationale? None of it made any sense. The match sucked. Like, it was terrible. And it all started on a SmackDown reunion. A show Evolution or Evolution was never even on, but whatever. And then, like, they're like, you Hunter, you never beat me. See, that works if they had never fought before. Like, you've beaten everyone, but not me. Right? That makes sense. But when you've beaten the man soundly at every turn, it really starts to feel like you want him to beat you. I don't know. Maybe he just really wanted that nose ring out. All right. Number four. Skinny jeans face circa 2014. Again, it's not really his fault. Um, But look, those pants... (laughs) My God, those skinny jeans, they're going to explode and we'd finally get to see how big his dick is. Number three, Evolution Batista. Again, uh, nothing earth shattering, but it's the foundation upon which his face run was built. I think he's good in the role um, in the 2000s, but I think he's fun in 2014 when he said, fuck it, enough squashing Alberto Del Rio, get back out there with your friends. I know it didn't make sense storyline wise, but I think he's good at it. Number two, 2009, 2010, whiny heel Batista. Uh, The opposite of give me what I want is you people don't deserve me, which was great. You're right, Dave. The whole company didn't deserve this run in 2010, and it's a shit year. Go back and listen to the year that... All right, let's just move on. Number one character. It's got to be face Batista. And I think it's for all the reasons I mentioned above. But holy hell, is it easy to forget how over he was. He was just a cool ass kicker. Give the fans that. They're always going to get behind you. 100%. All right, let's rank the dude's work. So I don't mean match quality. I'm talking more just the things he does in the ring. Uh, Do they have, like, what does his actual work look like? And I think Batista's greatest asset when it comes to his in-ring work is his explosive offense. There's just this fantastic kick. Uh, to his work that's kind of unique among wrestlers. And I think the best example is how he delivers a spine buster. Like the explosiveness of the move, he hits it so hard that he pops back up to his feet after the impact of the move. And it's it's crazy, uh, but that little pop he gives to moves, like in the spine buster, I think that's what actually started getting him over because it just looks so fucking cool. Everything he does offensively is just done with gusto. And it looks like he's really trying to end your life with each blow. Even something as simple as a power slam. Like it, it's like he's trying to drive his opponent through the mat and send him into early retirement. I take a little bit of an issue with his punches. Um, I tend to keep going back to punches, but punches are such an integral part of a wrestler. Like when we, talk, when we get to Billy Gunn, we're going to talk about how he punches people with his wrist. And that's really strange. And it kind of hurts the whole presentation. So anyway, but Batista's punches are weird because it's like he doesn't, it's like he doesn't seem to extend his arm fully on a punch. He's like a He-Man figure whose arms don't bend. It's like you twist the waist and Fisto's fist smashes Triclops' head. I suppose this technique works better with his clotheslines, right? It, I think it's fine with his clotheslines. But I guess that makes sense since his biceps rival Gaston's in terms of size and sadness. I'm unsure why they were so... They're so quick to characterize Vince's balls as grapefruits, but they never seem to find a way to use a fruit or vegetable metaphor for Dave's arms. I mean, if JR could have said like, his arms are the size of pumpkins, we, we might have been jettisoned into the next boom period. All the same, I'm sure those clotheslines were easy to sell, 
because it was an unripe pumpkin directly to the throat. And I, I look, I'll say this too. When I met the man, I really wanted to touch biceps. Um, the biggest drawback to his work, as amazing as his intensity is, is for many longer matches, I don't feel what he does is sustainable. As we're going to talk about his, his matches, right? But he kind of excels in sprints. And I think a reason for that is after a certain amount of time, He's just running out of offensive maneuvers. Now, lots of guys run into this type of problem, right? But the thing is, Batista's often placed in 20-minute-plus matches. So it becomes a bit more obvious when he runs out of moves, right? So then it becomes spinebuster on the stairs, a spinebuster on a table, spinebuster through a sex bed. When we finally got to the spinebuster off the Golden Bridge, I'm done, right? It's enough. Now, sometimes, again, it works super well, as we'll see in some matches. But other times, it just doesn't feel like they're playing to the man's strengths. His selling, pretty good for a big man. But it improved substantially after he went away to make some movies. I suppose being around real actors, uh, instead of taking your cues from a Japanese guy dressed up in a cowboy hat, that'll do that for you. Batista Bomb, devastating. But I kind of wonder if it might have been better as a straight throw down power bomb rather than a sit down i was always so scared for his legs as he smashed guys down between them now i will never say he went as far as say an ahmed johnson type character who would power bomb men directly onto his knees and thighs but i always felt that the rollback after the batista bomb was kind of slightly awkward only because he was never able to kind of just sit down and pin someone out of it it was a sit down power bomb that landed in a pin position, but he always rolled backwards and kind of scrambled across the mat to get to the dude on time. Oh, all this to be said, I think he's slightly above average worker for a big dude. I'm going to go five out of 10 and someone who probably overachieved in terms of match quality through sheer intensity and raw, raw charisma. Let's deal with his matches. So his match average across pay-per-views, obviously I didn't do all the raws because, you know, I'm sane. His ra- match average is 3.104 stars. And I find it crazy that out of the guys we've looked at so far, Jake and Scott Hall, Batista has the highest match average of the three. And I, I do believe too that, that that comes from working in a very athletic period. But you kind of also have to give him credit for hanging with some of the greatest of all time. And he doesn't look out of place and he holds his own. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have bad matches. So let's look at the bottom five. Fifth worst match from WrestleMania 21 versus Batista. Versus Triple H. He is Batista versus Triple H for the World Heavyweight title. Two and a half stars. Now, it's not that this match is bad. It's the Triple H in his infinite wisdom decided to have a 20 minute force classic rather than a complete and other ass fucking that he deserved and i guess the idea was to build more matches which in truth is the first time that i remember a guy continually getting rematches after losing each time out but it did batista no favors right and it's funny this is where i think the company takes a turn i don't think it's batista's fault clearly it's triple h's fault but this is when the useless rematches um, really become a problem in the company where it's like, okay, we're doing three, no matter what we're doing three. And this is the, not that they didn't rematches before, but this is the first time it's really obvious. 
And I've been thinking about it a lot. And for me, that's when NXT kind of died too. It was when we were getting the same matches every takeover. It's like they fell into that formula. Anyway, uh, back to WrestleMania 21. I just think there's way too much pointless selling from the big guy here. There's a moment late in the match where Batista throws Triple H into the corner and then he follows up with a massive clothesline. And Triple H's sell is incredible. Like, he kind of just takes it, pops up, and falls on his ass. Like, it looks like he's crippled by the sheer strength of Batista. It told us everything you wanted to know about their dynamic. The dynamic being Triple H cannot handle him. It just happened after 15 minutes of Triple H handling him and taking too much of the match. This was a comeuppance match as much as it was a crowning match because they beat the shit out of Batista. It it was the culmination of a story. Batista rolling over him in five to seven minutes would have been fine. Everybody would have been happy. The match didn't do what it was supposed to do, too. It was supposed to put Batista over as a killer. It put him over, but after two rematches with Hunter, Batista was less popular than when he won won the Royal Rumble. Go back and listen to the pops. It's there. And the trouble starts here in this match. The trouble here is because they're placing Batista in the wrong mold. See, it's bad enough when you're when you're working when you work with Triple H, you're forced to work a long ass Triple H style match, right? But this this is when it goes a step further in that Triple H trains him and the audience to think that a main event style match is a long ass Triple H match. And that doesn't work for everybody. It didn't even work for Triple H. Triple H was cosplaying as a poor man's Bret Hart, right? And he clearly pushed Batista to do the same. But Batista wasn't the next Bret Hart, right? He was the next Hulk Hogan or Ultimate Warrior. This didn't play to Batista's strengths. Instead, it forced him to repeat Triple H's weaknesses. All right, number four, worst match. From Taboo Tuesday, 2005, Batista fighting Jonathan Coachman, Vader, and Goldust. Two and a half stars. Once again, not a bad match per se. In many ways, more of an angle than anything. But late 2005 is such, it's really a strange period for Big Dave. He defends against Guerrero in October at No Mercy. And then doesn't defend the title on pay-per-view for the rest of the year. Now, again, really strange way to book the dude that could have been your next top guy. Never mind the fact that (laughs) the guy that the company did choose is getting booed out of every building fighting Kurt Angle. So it's really Batista versus Coach with Vader and Goldust there as backup. Vader, game, but looks gassed. And I don't blame Vader. Goldust really feels uninspired. And Coach is, you know, not a wrestler. Uh, There's a lot of belt whipping. I pity the cameraman. So they took the belt from the cameraman, right? Like, I mean, I pity the cameraman who goes home after a night of hard work only to be accused of infidelity because he doesn't have his belt. Then there's a further conversation with, no, I will not watch the show and see that a gold man took your belt. And when are you going to get a real job? No doubt this led to a murder-suicide. Anyway, Batista carries everyone in this match he's only got so much place on his shoulders and his shoulders are big. Crowd was hot though. 
Number three worst match, Batista versus JBL. Great American Bash 2005 for the World Heavyweight title. Two and a quarter. I'll mention again, they really did Batista no favors in the wake of his title win. Not only does he have to carry around Triple HGH for three shows, but he also gets the loser of the other title feud in a very special because we say so angle. And they really try with JBL though. He gets the full limo, the USA smock. He gets six tons of confetti. And I get that this was another guy for Batista to beat, but there's just not a ton of credibility in the feud. And as a consequence, Batista ends up feeling lesser than, right? I mean, on the other show, Cena's defending against Jericho, Christian, Kurt Angle. It's such an imbalance, right? Because JBL has been beaten at this point. He's on his way down, right? Like, Cena's fighting guys that have been heated back up. Now they've been down, but they've heated back up. Batista's fighting leftovers here, right? Um, Yeah, I just feel, I don't know. It just feels lesser than, you know? And re-watching these, I'm really getting the sense that the follow-up to Batista's win is one of the worst follow-ups they've ever done for a guy at his level. A match like this, again, doesn't play to his strengths at all. It's a JBL slog. Batista's offense ends up looking great, but again, like the Triple H matches, he spends far too long on defense, and the match goes on longer than needed. This thing's 20 minutes, and so much of it is in rest holds. And you can visibly see the crowd die when JBL has Batista in the reverse chin lock. I mean, not one person, not one person in the building is going to believe that when the ref drops his arm for the third time, it's going to go down. We believed Hulk Hogan was going to submit to Killer Khan more than we believe Batista's going down to JBL. And what does this do for JBL, too? If he has a chin lock on a guy for three straight minutes, shouldn't the dude be unconscious? I guess he's got no strength in those arms at all, right? He mustn't have any. Imagine the effort it took to carry all those little flags. Watching them fight on the outside. They go to the outside, right? And watching them fight on the outside, I couldn't help but feel sorry for any prostitutes that have been forced to fuck on confetti. I mean, that shit must get everywhere. And I also don't want to turn this into a JBL bash fest, right? That will come when I cover JBL. I do think he's a pretty solid professional wrestler, JBL, but he's miscast as a main event guy who needs to go 20 minutes. Again, Batista comes out worse. Two visual pinfalls for JBL and then a bullshit DQ finish. Ugh. It's no surprise that these guys have a match the next month and it's way better because guess what? It goes half the time and plays to both guys' strengths. I think JBL could have been a good main event or two in shorter matches. It's just they have it in their head that main events need to be 25 minutes despite the fact that Hulk Hogan did the best business they've ever done wrestling 7 to 10 minute matches. All right, number two worst match. Batista. Versus The Great Kali. SummerSlam 2007, two and a quarter. Look, it's Batista versus Kali. Come on. No no wonder this SummerSlam sucks. And Batista's worst match. Full circle, my friends. From WrestleMania 35. No holds barred. Against Triple H. Going two stars. His worst match is two stars. I'll give him that, right? But this is probably the most unnecessary match of all time. I mean, I guess it I guess I shouldn't be surprised at the hubris of these two going up 
and nearly eating an hour of a seven-hour show at the combined age at the time of 99. And that's not a sarcastic number. That's their real combined age at WrestleMania 35. I guess I also shouldn't be surprised that in a Triple H match, a guy can get hit with a toolbox two minutes in and then work a match for another 23 minutes. The only saving grace of this thing is the crowd is dead silent for 80% of it. Honestly, I should be below two stars on it. Like seriously, 25 minutes? And 25 minutes from two guys that we have seen wrestle each other a bunch of times in their prime a decade before. Triple H, of course, spends the first eight minutes just torturing Batista. Yeah, yeah, it's Batista's big return. It's his big return. But, you know, Triple H has got to take the beginning of the match, right? Even though, you know, Triple H is the face of the match. It's just eight minutes of him torturing him. It's a slog. It's sloppy. They're constantly falling down. Christ, Batista couldn't even get in the ring on his own entrance. Of course, of course, of course. It's got to come down to two sledgehammers. Because, you know, know, breaking a dude's hand with a wrench, pulling his nose ring out, that's not enough. No, no. We have to believe that a man can survive a jumping sledgehammer thrust and live. And then face Triple H wins. What a send-off for Batista. Why couldn't he come back and put over a young guy who needed it? Like, I don't know who this was for. Not me. And at least Triple H was only aping a movie that came out four years before. That's as as much with the times as WWE usually gets. So look, you, you see a pattern. There's a pattern in his worst stuff. When you force Batista to go 20 minutes, the results aren't always the best. That, and you force him to wrestle a Triple H match instead of a Batista match. Two of the worst five. No surprise. Top five matches. Number five. Let's get to some good stuff. Four stars right away. Number five, four stars. Love it. Batista versus Shawn Michaels. Stretcher match. One Night Stand 2008. This was one I'd never seen until I did it for the year that was. And I really feel like this match comes out of a logical storyline from their previous encounter. Shawn beats Batista by feigning an injury. Batista's embarrassed. So this match is all about injuring the other person. We get the typical Sean trying to fight a big man stuff, but it feels a little more intense uh, match with Batista's explosive offense. And they also do a fantastic job of using the stretcher as a weapon, ooing and awing the crowd with the blows from it. And you get a sense right from the start that Batista's there to murder him. I mean, this of course works very well as Batista looks like he's making a widow out of the heartbreak kid's wife. He's one of the few guys that Batista can like throw around like a cruiserweight and yet Michaels is still credible against Batista. I love the spot where Sean super kicks him and then he falls on the ladder and as Michaels tries to move the stretcher, Batista just reaches back and very subtly holds the apron so he can't roll him any further. Just awesome stuff. This is the first match I've noticed too, just how fucking wrinkly the top of Batista's head is. It's like a Sharpe up there. They even do a good job of working Jericho in as he comes out to goad Sean into getting himself more killed by the animal. The massacre of Michaels leads to a great spot where Sean must use Batista's trunks to get to his feet. So he's kind of crawling up. And then he tries for the super kick, uh, but he barely gets it above the sun tattoo. And then Batista just fucking power... Marcus must have lost his mind. Just power bombs the shit out of him again. Um, 
Batista has the match won for a second time, but Jericho once again comes out to get Sean. Um, and he's like, come on, you can do it, Sean. Like <laughs> trying to get him into an ass kicking. It's all done under the false guise of you can do it, which is what makes it better. This leads to Batista giving him a spine buster on the metal stairs. And finally, Dave just slams him on the stretcher, rolls him over the line. It's just a fantastic destruction of Sean, building upon a great story that he, Batista, and Chris Jericho had going. Batista looked like a killer. I love matches like this. It's so against formula. Loved it. Number four. Another four-star match. From Survivor Series 2007, Hell in the Cell, Batista versus The Undertaker. So they have a great year in 2007. This is one of their great matches. I like this one a fair bit, uh, despite the bullshit finish with Edge getting involved. It's actually kind of the inverse of the match we just talked about. Like, I don't want Edge versus either guy, right? Of course, at this point, Taker and Batista have been feuding for the whole year, so I guess we're kind of done, uh, despite the great results. So yeah, great hell in the cell. Um, I'll talk more about Batista, Taker in a minute. Number three best match. Batista versus Triple H. Hell in a Cell, Vengeance 2005 for the World Heavyweight title. Going four stars. So this is this is a favorite of my No Holds Barred and now entering the Royal Rumble broadcast partner, uh, JT. Um, by the way, no, uh, now entering the Royal Rumble drops every other Monday in tandem with this show. No Holds Barred every other Saturday. I hope you can check those out. Check out everything we've got going on on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. It's all good stuff from... Uh, you know, God, New Gen on a Mission is great. Viewer's Choice is great. Wrestling Warzone. Wrestling uh, Wrestling War with JT and Marcus. It's all great. Jenny Position. Ruthlessly Aggressive. Really, check it out. Ryan Gray stuff. It's all great. Um, I'm not, I haven't been doing a ton of plugs. These are already long. But I really love the, the docket of shows we have. Anyway. Um, Batista, Triple H, Hell in a Cell, Vengeance. Uh, my broadcast partner, JT, I think he has this at five stars. And since I'm only at four, I figure I'd give it a rewatch. Um, most of these I rewatched, which was actually kind of fun. Because instead of watching the context of shows, it really gave you the match in a vacuum. Uh, number one, Batista looks like a fucking beast in white. Oh, just incredible. And I, I do like that the announcers talk up that this is probably Triple H's last shot. And in my head, I'm like, fucking finally. Oh, they meant this month? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I'm trying hard to remember a rematch clause being invoked before this. And if it isn't, this is kind of historically significant for all the wrong reasons. Once again, the problem with all Triple H's big matches is that the foreign objects go too far. This match starts with him whipping a heavy chain into the ribs repeatedly. I mean, I can suspend my disbelief, uh, but like all of Batista's ribs should be broken. You punch him with the ribs, sure, but when you're whipping him with the chain... And I don't view this as a Batista problem. This is a Triple H thing rooted in the use of the sledgehammer. Oddly enough, I have much less problems as they break out a steel chair wrapped in barbed wire. The lacerations from the barbed wire are sick, but I believe someone could fight through them. I believe that a guy could work through the pain of little cuts. I struggle mightily with the idea that anyone can tough out repeated shots to the body with tools and construction equipment. Batista's attack on Triple H with the chair, though, is awesome because Rice, uh, not Ra, Rice, Jim Rice, no, Jim Ross is screaming, for the love of God! It's, it's so good. Uh, credit to Triple H uh, for the fantastic blade job as Batista continues, continues to ram his head everywhere. Uh, 
And they really get great mileage out of the chair. Great power slam by Batista on it. Triple H does a DDT as like Jim Ross is like, this is the homicide of two careers. Then they have to knock it down a bit with the emergence of a sledgehammer. Personal rule, any match with a sledgehammer uses a quarter star immediately. Case in point, Batista kicks out immediately after a sledgehammer shot to the face. To the fucking face! I dare you to pause this podcast right now, drive to your hardware store, touch your head with a sledgehammer, and if you don't immediately get a headache, I'll murder everyone you love. See, I do like Triple H wrapping the chain around his hand for punches. That's simple. That looks great. It's not the full force of the chain, so it works. I don't like the referee telling him to stop. Like, oh, stop, stop. It's telling the cell, get the fuck out of here with that. And I love the finishing sequence with the sixth spine buster to Triple H on the stairs, followed by the Batista bomb. And as we'll, I will say, again, I'm all over the place. But as much as I hate that fucking sledgehammer, I do like Triple H had it in his hands as Batista got him up for the powerbomb. Because it gave some doubt as to whether this was it or not. All in all, brutal hell in the cell in the best ways. And delivered in spades. Triple H, you know, for all the shit I give him, he worked like a champ. See, this worked. This was a long one that worked. It's just they all don't work, right? Um, Triple H worked like a champ. Batista kept up with him 100%. The blood was spectacular. And it felt like the type of match that these two should have had at WrestleMania 21. I know I lamented, um, I know I lamented like, oh, it should have been a quick squash. But if you're going to do a war, this is what you do. I think I can safely bump this up to four and a quarter though. Sledgehammer stuff, overindulgent Triple H tropes. Ugh, that's what I don't like. I just don't want Triple H in these matches. All right, second best match. Batista versus John Cena. SummerSlam 2008, four and a quarter. Both guys are faces. Well, in the eyes of the company anyway. (laughs) So this is a match just to see who's better, and I'm here for it. And uh, thanks, Mike Adamley, uh, who put the match together. You may not have known who Jeff Hardy was, but uh, you can put this together and it makes me happy. I mentioned earlier too that Batista's best matches are his sprints, and this is a great example. Despite the announcer's best efforts to portray Cena as the man of the people in jeans and a t-shirt, while Batista wears suits, the crowd is really heavily on Dave's side. In an interesting move, um, Batista takes a break from throwing bombs and works John Cena's leg, which I really dug. I mean, he's doing a figure four while Cole and King talk about how Flair trained him. I like that. They're, they're playing on his history and it makes sense. Cena, of course, despite, I don't know, just having his leg in a figure four for a few minutes, scoops Batista up in a fireman's carry, toss him to the outside. Then, then sells the leg. Drives me insane. Now he's jumping around on it, hitting the shoulder blocks. But you see, in his mind, that's fine as long as you hold the leg after. Meanwhile, in New Japan, Kenny Omega is doing one-armed, one-armed, one-winged angels. But I love that Batista's breaking out things like a rear naked choke as a counter to Cena's FU. And I love, love, love the finish as Batista turns uh, like Cena's jumping leg drop into a powerbomb for a quick two. And then Batista just kind of loses it. <laughs> He's clearly pissed. He kicks Cena in the fucking face, like right in the face. Then he scoops him up power bombs him and bends him. I love that like he's just had enough and decides to destroy him. Huge pop for the win too. And I remember at the time being shocked 
and pleasantly surprised as they put Batista over. They wouldn't fight again for a few years, and I like a lot of their other matches. I just think this one still stands as the best one for me. Batista's best match in the company. WrestleMania 23, my friends, versus The Undertaker. Four and a half. I could be easily convinced up to four and three quarters. Did I mention at any point that I love Batista's sprints? <laughs> Did I mention that it plays to his strengths? I remember when Taker won the Royal Rumble in 2007, I was not excited for the prospect of this match. I liked uh, Undertaker Orton in 2005, but since then, with the exception of the one Kurt Angle match, for me, he was done. Plus, I couldn't see him becoming champion in 2007. I was like, geez, he's, he's not done? Now, Batista felt like a good enough guy to end the streak, too. And I guess these two were insulted because they didn't go on last and said, fuck it. Let's revitalize The Undertaker's career like it's Brutus Beefcake's face in 1993. It's bombs. It's killer blows right from the start. I love that Batista feels he needs to take The Undertaker out quickly, lest he lose any momentum. Batista's urgency is fantastic. He's breaking out flying shoulder blocks, spears early in the match. Nothing gets me more invested in a match that when I see a guy with a sense of urgency to win, he has to win. That's how I suspend disbelief. They trade punches, but since Batista isn't a pure striker, he gets the worst of it. They fight on the outside through tables. Uh, Batista grounds and pounds. He pulls out all the stops to try to beat the dead man. And again, urgency is great in his work. He breaks out a belly-to-belly suplex, which I don't remember him doing that often. And I guess Batista's hate for Triple H ran deep enough that he never watched any of his matches against Undertaker because he, like his mentor, does the 10 punch in the corner, uh, which always leads to a last ride for a close two. And the crowd is not into Batista potentially winning. He hits a sick spine buster. Booze! Great spear. Super slow kick out by Taker after Batista bomb, which really sells the intensity of what's going on. And this was before, like, this was before the multitude of kickouts out of the tombstone. Um, so the ending is so simple. Taker just happens to catch him. He just happens to catch him weird, has him through some tombstone, drops him for the three count. And it really sold the idea that Taker just caught him. It could have gone either way, and Batista's no worse for the loss. It's, it's, it's a really, whoever was the agent for this match should be the agent for more matches because people worry about how people lose in a loss. This took nothing away from him. He just got caught, and that happens sometimes. Best match on the show, and it's a great show. One of my favorite matches in WrestleMania history And I like that they just said, fuck the formula and went out and beat the shit out of each other for 15 minutes. Fantastic. So I guess Batista's golden years um, are 2007, 2008. Sure, he's got some gems earlier and a few great ones later. But I thought he really had it together for those two years. I'm sure it helps he's in the ring with some of the greatest of all time. But like I mentioned earlier, Batista really holds his end, both in terms of ring work and character credibility. It's, it's, It's awesome stuff. So Batista, all in all, uh, for his match quality, ends up scoring a 6.208. So that's his average star rating divided by two to get a score out of 10, which again, like I said, is the best so far, which is kind of uh, shocking. I wouldn't have predicted that. Next category, promos. First off, it's really hard to find Batista, like a Batista promo that's under three minutes because he comes from an era of guys guys needed to have the ability to cut 20-minute promos to start the show. But I found one. Uh, It's during the lead-up to the 2009 uh, TLC pay-per-view. 
when he was about to fight The Undertaker. He'd recently pummeled Rey Mysterio into goo, and the crowd was pissed. Let's give it a listen. And I want to do this a bit differently this time. It's a bit longer, so I'll play a part of this and then break it down bit by bit till the end. And you guys let me know if you prefer this format or the one I've been doing with the full promo in the previous episodes. All right, let's go to start. Understanding me, let me make this as clear as possible. I've thought of a way to make this very simple so you will understand. Would you please give me a spotlight? So right off the bat, the line, I didn't hear you when you cheered me so I don't hear you when you boo me. It's great. And I'm curious if that was written for him or not, because it felt natural. But after that, we're starting to see the problems with the promo. He goes from that killer opening line to saying he needs everyone to understand him. But there's no tone change at all between those sentences. If you were speaking for real, with real intention, those things have two very different meanings, right? One is chastising the audience, and another is, I need your approval. H huge difference. And it's a huge red flag that there's no change when he goes from speaking to the crowd to speaking to the tech people to give him the spotlight. Because you would be, you would be, you're talking to different people, so you have different feelings about them, right? If anything, as a heel, he should show the technicians who run the show that he wants to be the head of more respect than he does the paying customer. Get what I'm saying now? This is not about you. This is about me being in the spotlight where I deserve to be. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make money. I'm here to win titles. Everything about me screams world heavyweight champion. I don't know if you can hear it here. But he is very much struggling with vocal intonation, with any and all vocal intonation. This is not about you. This is about me. And everything about me screams world champion. So the way he kind of says it is, this is not about you. This is about me. And everything about me screams world champion. You would, again, it's in the exact same cadence and intensity. When that doesn't make sense, you would have contempt for the audience, pride for yourself, and then you would put over your what your accomplishment is, and, and your your tone would change as a result, right? Uh, his only tool that he's using at times is he tends to growl one word in a sentence. Now, contrast this with a guy like Jake, who switches tones with every thought, which is what people do. People switch tones when they change thoughts. Now, this might seem like some sort of advanced stuff, but it really is just how humans speak. Jake plays with rate of delivery, which is the physical speed of things coming out of your mouth, slowing down uh, important parts, speeding up when he gets worked out. He uses volume to create variety. Jake is kind of a master, while Batista 
ends up sounding like the robot from Rocky Four, and we don't need that dude cutting a promo. The way I walk, the way I talk, the way I look, the way I dress, my ring dominance, everything. And now you can hear this is a huge list. The way he walks, talks, dresses, ring dominance, everything. He doesn't deliver that that speech like that. He delivers it, walks, talks, dresses, ring dominance, everything. When you give a list quickly, it means it's a grocery list, right? A grocery list is is inconsequential. Okay, I need grapes, I need water, I need uh, condoms. You know, like whatever it is, it doesn't give anything on the list value. When you're listing off your qualities, you're going to find that some are more or less important to you. And, or you're building, look at all the qualities I have. So each one is more important than the one that came before it. The bad actor will constantly forget to give listed items value, which is what Batista does here. Which brings me to the undertaker. The Undertaker is not the dominant force that everyone makes him out to be. For the last two weeks, I've beat him down. I've beaten him from within. I've looked into his eyes and I've seen nothing but fear. At the risk of sounding like a broken record here, I've beaten him down. I've beaten him from within. If Batista was truly experiencing what he's describing, then those beatings, one of them would be more satisfying than the other. And we would hear it. We would hear it in his intonation. See, there's something that The Undertaker, as well as all of you, too stubborn and too stupid to realize the undertaker has already lost me beating the undertaker at TLC is only a formality I will say he's very effective with his pauses and is commanding enough respect from the crowd that they're not chanting what at him Again, it's an area though where here's an area where he could have been stronger. He says the Undertaker and the crowd are too stupid to realize what is happening. That's a great setup, right? Because because you're gonna you're gonna you use that as a setup to be like here, you guys and the Undertaker are too stupid to know what's happening. That's a setup, and wh- then he's gonna tell us what's happening, right? So after we we do give a setup, right? Like it's like oh my god, guys, the other day I went to the store. And I got robbed. You know, like it's a setup with, with, you have to hit the listener with the conclusion for the setup. And he, he, he delivers the, the word, the undertaker is already lost like every other sentence in the promo. So it doesn't feel like the definitive point he's trying to make. Instead, it feels like he's reading off a script, which he probably is. So there's something... And all of you, and all of you back there, 
and The Undertaker and everybody around the world better get used to, and you can say it along with me if you want, World Heavyweight Champion Batista! So if you're going to talk for three minutes and 19 seconds, you have to structure your speech in such a way that the audience goes on a ride with you. And the structure in this, in this, see, this is a hard one. It's a hard one to kind of, cause you know, when talking about Jake, I'm really looking at like his character and who he is right in this. I don't get that feeling because I don't, I'm not listening to someone going through something. And the structure for this speech really is simple enough looks like there's four sections. And this is what you do if you were breaking down a monologue. You'd break it down into sections. And at the very least, if you do that, you have four very different tones and feels, right? And then you go from there and you build more. So there's four big sections. Section one, I don't care about the audience. Section two, this is who I am. Section three, this is what I'm going to do to The Undertaker. And section four... The result of the beating that I'm going to give is going to be X, right? So each of those sections means something completely different. Each one should lead to the next and bounce off the one that came before. So like, I, you know, I'm telling you I don't care about the audience and that makes me think, oh, wait, I'm going to tell you who I really am, right? That's how a great speech is structured. Um, the st- his speech here becomes a bit uninteresting because he's not following a structure, if you tell us the result of a three-minute speech in the same tone with which you introduced the whole speech, there's no growth or movement, right? It's like you don't you don't come out and say, hey, guys, I got something to tell you. And then the last thing you say is, I quit, in the same tone, right? Because if you haven't grown in the course of the speech, why the fuck do it? Just say one thing and leave. Otherwise, you're just killing time. Oddly enough, when I first saw The Guardians of the Galaxy... At first, I kind of, I felt I was watching the worst casting possible when he started speaking as Drax. Now, it's the brilliance of James Gunn that he kind of leaned into the fact that Batista's monotone and it ends up being his defining characteristic. And so it works. So, but he's covering him he, and he covers him here. But thankfully, Batista's presence, his facial expressions don't allow him to tank in this category. He's understandable. He speaks well. We don't lose words like some guys. He's just missing the emotions of a living, breathing person. And maybe that's a testament to the time in which he's working. But in any event, five out of 10 for promos, even though I kind of broke it down a bit. Let's go with importance. I think Batista came around at exactly the right time. The company was in desperate need of a megastar. Rock was gone. Brock left the year before. Triple H is not the guy to fill that gap. In fact, he was driving fans to suicide by the droves. I believe that if you look back, there's a direct correlation between Triple H television time and the the mass murder-suicide epidemic of the early 2000s. It was fucking bleak. And then the superstar appears. And Batista was ready and willing to be the next guy. Yeah, he's 36 years old. But who cares? Who cares? The people were ravenous for the dude. So, of course, they went with John Cena instead, uh, which caused a rift between the fans that really last till this day. 
Batista became number two, which is fine because a great number one needs a great number two. But there's probably a very interesting other dimension where Batista is pushed as the number one face of the promotion. And as a consequence, the business is better. Hell, maybe even Roman Reigns gets over as a face from 2005 on without the fans being burned by 10 years of Cena. And I'm not even saying this to criticize Cena. I think Cena's an incredible performer. But the fact that there was never a pivot there really hurt the fans, I think. Batista was also an, always an, an important anchor to the show that Cena wasn't on. Cena was raw, Batista's dominating SmackDown. And you really felt his absence in 2006 when he goes down with an injury. SmackDown is in shambles. It leads to known child Rey Mysterio winning the World Heavyweight Championship. Imagine if you, how mad you are if you're Batista. You're the one with biceps the size of tires on your arms. You're the one cuckolding John Morrison. And now Lil Rey Mysterio is filling your shoes? Imagine how small his dick is? No. If I'm Batista, I'm clotheslining the shit out of him too. In fact, I'm probably banging Angie Mysterio too as some kind of a tax. And the problem with all of that and everything we mentioned is that in the end, the business doesn't really, it's sad. The business doesn't really change without Batista. And it's only because they went with Cena. I mean, yeah, if you take Batista out, you lose great matches against The Undertaker in 2007. But the machine was Cena all the way. And I can't think of one thing that would be vastly different if Batista was erased from company history. It's not like he's Mick Foley who made guys and pushed them to the next level. It's not like he's involved in classic storylines that shaped how the business is today. It's not even like he pushed the business to new heights. He didn't have a chance. He was just a guy. A guy who was on the verge of being transcendent for a period. But they chose somebody else. Someone the fans liked less. Maybe Batista is the first guy, is the first guy truly scorned and a victim of the company not listening to the fans. Because it feels like in late 2005, like the crowds were turning on Cena full scale. And if they pivot to pushing Batista as the face of the re- is the face, the wrestling world probably looks completely different. I guess we'll never know. It's crazy in many ways that Batista somewhat underachieves considering his potential. He was so over in 2004 and 2005. He was a monster. But by WrestleMania 24, just three years after his crowning, he's relegated to a pretty heatless grudge match with Umanga. He misses both WrestleMania 22 and 25 with injuries. Yeah, but either through booking or his old ass body breaking down, he's kind of a missed huge opportunity. But he helped every show he was on. 15 times out of 67 pay-per-view appearances, he has the best match on the show. You never would have imagined that with Batista. But that's like a quarter of the shows he's on, he's in the best match. And then that doesn't even count times like Vengeance 05 where he has that great hell in the cell Triple H, but he's just bested by something that's a bit better on the show. Meanwhile, only three times he has the worst match on the show. And usually it's against Triple H or JBL. That's the real reign of terror in there. I don't know, man. I keep leaving this his his thing with like, a, a, I wish there was more. I wanted a better taste in my mouth. I'm still going to go seven on importance because 
He was still a major star, but it should be a nine or a 10. It really should. All right, presentation. I think it's safe to say at the beginning, they had no clue how to present the dude. Like they they made him uh, a second to the lesser of the Dudley boys. You know, like if I'm banging Kim or Kanye, it's Kim 100% of the time. Who wants to fucking bang Kanye? He, yes, he's the voice of a generation, but no way that dude shuts up when you're inside of him. Fuck, I, I bet you, I bet you if you're banging Kim, he shows up and like, and he tells you, yeah, he's going to let you finish, but it was actually him who was one of the greatest assholes of all time. But more than that, the whole concept of, of Reverend Devon was based around the idea that Devon says testify. So we guys, we got to push him as a preacher. That's it. That's the impetus for the character. And this is what they thought would be the best route for Leviathan. They threw him in a sleeveless suit and put a chain around his neck. It was dumb. Now, when they finally figured out that he was the strong silent type who could get over more on looks and moments, they ended up getting it 100% right. They pushed him to the top and he never really looked back. But again, he was always presented as a credible threat to win every match he was in. He was also a threat to the title at any time. And earlier I lamented that he was de-emphasized for John Cena. But it's an interesting note to note that the one time they fought each other on the pay-per-view as faces, Batista took the clean win. And that does mean something. Yes, SmackDown was the B-show, but Batista was pushed to the top of it. But the whole package was an incredible instance where Vince and company had their finger on the pop culture pulse, right? He was like one of these MMA monsters. Let's deal with his music. The first song is called Animal. Let's give it a listen. Great kick off the top of the guitar riff. But I think what makes it really pop are the elongated notes that immediately follow. Oh, it gives me the impression that something dire is coming. The beat is slow and heavy, and Batista's a huge heavy guy. So I was contemplating writing another big dick joke here, but I don't even know why this is a thing. But then I pictured him fucking to this song. And man, wouldn't that be the biggest ego trip? Hold on, babe. Turns on the music. God, I cannot see it now. Ugh. Anyway, this uh, music did a great job preparing the battlefield for Massacre. It feels like something serious is coming, and that's what I really like. So much like RVD's original music, they decided to keep the general idea of his song, but update it. Hence, we got I Walk Alone. Let's <laughs> Same guitar riff uh, off the top. 
bit heavier, but now we're screaming, yeah! This song is just much heavier. Uh, nice pause for him to do the machine gun stuff with his arms. I do like uh, that the whole I Walk Alone theme works with him because he recently left the Evolution group. Uh, you know, then on the verses we get like the similar guitar pattern as the first song. I like it. It gives us a sense that something bad's going to happen. But more than anything, it's just fucking cool. I remember at WrestleMania 35, um, the entrance for him was so long that we heard the chorus about 80 times and it never got old. It was still cool until he fell out of the ring. But, you know, the music still worked. It really helped the entire package. Good job here. Um, he's got a few championship reigns. If we're going to look at his um, uh, presentation, we've got to look at his championship reigns. He's got six of them, the world titles. I'm not going to talk about his tag stuff. Um, I think his, his worst is when he beats Randy Orton at Extreme Rules for 2009 for the WWE title. He vacates it two days later for a triceps injury. So Orton is on the run of his life at this point, but we need to feed him to Batista. I wonder if the end game was if the big guy didn't get injured because like they go right back to Orton. Uh, five best uh, is the world heavyweight title. He beats Chris Jericho at Cyber Sunday 2008. Um... And then he loses it back to Jericho two weeks later on Raw. Chris Jericho's on the run of his life at this point, but we feed him to Batista. And yeah, Jericho gets it back two weeks later, but why Why bust up the momentum? Number four, uh, the WWE title that he wins in a bullshit way at Elimination 2010. Then he drops the scene at WrestleMania. I expected this one to go higher, but I think his best work is after the reign is over. I do love the cheap win at the Chamber. And the tremendous kissing babies and humping fat girls line. Yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, in the end, it's a quick month. Number three, world heavyweight title uh, that he wins on September 16th, 2007. He beats Great Kali and then loses to Edge in December. Uh, this uh, this one at first glance doesn't look that good. But then you got two really fun matches with The Undertaker in them. The Hell in a Cell Survivor Series. Uh, which really kind of puts the nail in the coffin to their feud. And then Edge is next. And I guess that's something. But instead of Batista, we get Edge defending against The Undertaker for the bulk of 08. Second best reign, world heavyweight title, uh, November 2006, when he beats Booker T until he loses it to re- at The Undertaker at WrestleMania 23. 126 days. I-, I definitely need to give the respect uh, to the run that gave us the best match of Batista's career. It's a little hurt by the fact that Booker T... Say it again, is on the run of his career and we feed him to Batista. Um, no, uh, what's weird here is there's two pay-per-views where Batista is teaming with someone in a nothing feud. So first he and Cena fight Booker T and friends. Uh, and then at No Way Out, the SmackDown main event teams up against the Raw main event. Whatever, it was a fine run. But his best title run is, for me, the first one. Um, he wins at WrestleMania 21 and he vacates in January 06. 286 days injury. You think with a run like this and being this length would be a layup, but I don't think it's a layup because after we're finished with Triple H leeching the heat from Batista, he gets stuck with JBL and then he's just on a Survivor Series team. And I'm curious if this represents the time when Eddie was supposed to win the championship and maybe that was the plan with Eddie and Batista, but you know, they didn't do anything. So they didn't want to, Eddie dies, so they don't do anything creative. They just kind of shunt Batista to the side. Anyway, it's sad things didn't work out better for Batista here. Uh, but he's rudderless. Man, he feels really undercut by the lengths of some of these reigns. I'd always thought of him as like a perpetual champion. But in the end, his reigns barely amount to a year. 
He always looked cool though. Um, so we're going to talk about his attire next. And it's always simple with pretty minor alterations. We're going to rank his looks. Really, it's usually just a color swap. Black tights, different writing. That being said, he's got a couple of particular looks. And we should talk about them. Number six, Deacon Batista. We've shit on it enough. Ripped sleeves, chained to a box. It was dumb. Uh, Devon should not have been hiring lizard people. Number five, bicycle shorts return 2014. And I mean, I guess you could interchange this with skinny jeans too. Both are not great looks. It felt like he forgot his gear at home that night. And Triple H said, don't worry. Uh, I got some tights for you. He slipped them on. And like now he's sort of like a, a Cinderella MMA dude. But the clock ran out. People booed him out of the building. No one has ever looked better in bike shorts after doing the tights. You, you can't go backwards. You got to Maybe you can do bike shorts, then tights. Uh, then, excuse me, then I don't know what you call it. The bathing suit, whatever the fuck it's called. Anyway. Uh, number four. Traditional look with black trunks and colored writing, but with his head shaved. I think Batista has a decent head with only minor resemblances to a wrinkled egg. I just think he looks better with, number three, that same look with his 2005 hair. I don't know. I guess I just trust people with hair. Second best look, white attire from the Vengeance Hell in a Cell versus Triple H. Minor alterca- uh, alteration. But he just looks different in white, like the ultimate good guy. Until he finds out you voted Republican and he bullies you on Twitter for the better part of an evening. All right, his best look though. And this is coming from a company that loves to throw around the phrase once in a lifetime. But here we are, about to deal with the true once in a lifetime. Blue Tista. I mean, Jesus Christ. It was only one night, but what a night. It had to be a rib, right? Every single other person in the ring is wearing black. The shield is all in black. Triple H and Orton are all in black. Michael Cole is wearing black. Ving Rames is black. But out pops the biggest dude in the match, not only in blue tights, but also wearing some sort of blue armbands and a vest. I will never, I'll never forget seeing Blue Tista was trending on Twitter, and I laughed the rest of the show. It's the best time I'd had watching a Triple H match since WrestleMania 12. And I know Batista was mad that people were chanting Blue Tista at him. But Jesus Christ, this is your fault for dressing that way. Read the fucking room, man. Read the room. Batista's merch was always simple. Things like animal written across the front, tribal shit on the sleeves. This was a company trying to sell uh, to, at the point, the the affliction type shirts popularized by MMA guys. I hated them, but people seemed to like them. Batista had some cool figures. Uh, Jack's fucked up the Batista figures, though. They never looked right in the face. They just couldn't get his face. Um, however, Mattel righted the ship by producing Blue Tista early in their line. That's the second best thing they've ever done. The first being releasing a Sin Cara figure with his arm in a sling. The best figure, though, is more likely his Hall of Champions figure from a few years ago. Uh, he's got the red tights, the belt. But the ultimate edition that's been released um, that nobody can find is apparently amazing. So always presented as a massive star, but usually the second best one. So I'm going to have to land him at an eight. Jesus, I'm really sorry this is going long. We're almost done. Feuds. Um, Batista falls kind of in the same category as many guys from the era as a victim of being booked in series of matches rather than feuds. 
The Triple H feud was a feud and was certainly interesting. Great slow burn, somewhat satisfying payoff. The scene from Raw where he ultimately makes his choice holds up really well. The thumbs down, the crazy powerbomb through the table, it clicks on all levels. Yes, the follow-up was nonsensical, um, but whatever. Everything leading up to that first win was great. I think a sneaky little contender for best feud is his mini feud with Shawn Michaels after Michaels retires Ric Flair at 24. Batista really wants to kill him. Shawn tricks him by faking the injury. Then Batista beats the shit out of him so he can't walk. And the stuff with Rey Mysterio is wonderful. I I love the turn and all the subsequent murderings of Rey. I love how he blames Rey for them losing. I mean, he's not wrong. Like, Rey is clearly the weak link of the team. But damn it, Dave, you knew that when you teamed up with him. And finally, the Cena stuff where Cena keeps beating him in 2010 is wonderful. His heel work is sublime. It's a shame they, he leaves before it really gets going. While he's not a huge feud guy, the ones he is involved in are all pretty memorable. I'm happy to go with six here. Let's go moments. Uh, best angle. Um, the best angle is obviously Blutista. Or the breakaway from Evolution, I guess. Uh, his worst angle, I think it's the 2019 return. He's just screaming about, give, him, give me what I want. I don't get it at all. But he's, he's, he's part of so many cool moments. Like, he's part of Evolution, which is huge. He gets to be in the ring as part of The Rock's return in 2004. He's got the title run with Flair, the Rumble win in 2005, winning the title at WrestleMania 21 as a face, which is always a marker to how seriously they take your push. He and The Undertaker proving everyone wrong about their feud. It's got to be up there too. No one had any expectations, and then they kill it for the whole year. Beating Cena at SummerSlam. Cena was invincible, and Batista beat him, right? The Ray turn, the whole heel run. He's also really effective in the 2010 Royal Rumble. He comes in near the end. He's like a fantastic bastard in a short time, ultimately breaking everyone's heart, eliminating fan favorite Shawn Michaels. There's a lot of meat on this bone, right? But it still feels like something's missing. Like there's no true gold standard moment for the dude. It's a ton of little great ones. So I'll go 7 out of 10 here. Um, if I had to name a best opponent for Batista, uh, it's The Undertaker, which is which is which would have been a shock, say, in 2004. But they just, they were magic. And I bet Taker's really grateful to Batista for kind of reinventing himself as like a work-rate guy at WrestleMania. His worst opponent, I think, is JBL by default. Triple H survives by the skin of his teeth thanks to that Hell in a Cell match. His single worst moment, I think it has to be winning the 2014 Rumble and getting booed out of the building. I mean, sure, poor Rey Mysterio took the brunt of that anger. But as soon as it became clear that Batista was winning, the fans started chanting for the upstart Roman Reigns, right? And I've always hated the argument that the fans wanted Reigns in 2014, but didn't want him in 2015. They, they're fickle. They don't know what they want. No, they didn't want Reigns in 2014. They wanted anyone but Batista. That is a massive failure on the company's part. And I think it's it sucks for Batista because he deserved better after returning from a four-year absence. So his single best moment, I really wish it could be his crowning at WrestleMania 21. But I think I have to go with beating Cena at SummerSlam 2008. Because from late 2005 on, John Cena's fucking invincible. It doesn't matter who the opponent was or how angry the crowd was. John Cena was winning. At best, uh, the heel could vanquish him with the help of the 13th Roman Legion. And even then, Cena could usually tough it out. But Batista, as a face, up and beats him clean. 
This was huge. Sets up Batista big for a monster 2009. And then he got hurt again. Well, that gives Batista a total score of 63.208, which places him square in the middle of Jake Roberts and Razor Ramon, who we've dealt with so far. Jake on top, Razor on the bottom. And his score for the moments, if I'm not mistaken, is a six. No, excuse me, a seven. I did mention it. Seven. So I'm a little surprised Jake finished ahead of such an important piece of the promotion, but the system is what it is. No system's perfect. Maybe the system is complete shit. Who knows? But maybe it just speaks to the many intangibles that Jake had that Big Dave didn't. Batista, though, was a super important, of my, important piece of my mid-2000s fandom. I was all in on the animal train. He felt like a much-needed injection of adrenaline into the promotion. I was one of those people that night in Montreal yelling for Batista all fucking night. Then he moved to SmackDown, a show I didn't get, and I was forced to endure year after year of John Cena, which eventually drove me from the product. Had the promotion been whole hog on Batista, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't have had the second of my great sabbaticals. Batista had all the tools to be a top-flight superstar, except youth. I think the company was afraid of his age, and in fairness, he did get injured a lot, right? That being said, I will always choose a few years of excellence from an older guy than a decade of pushing a guy as your top star that half the audience hates. I think there's probably an argument to be made too that Batista is the last true organic rise of a top guy to date. The crowd never turned on Big Dave during his initial run. He got over by being awesome. He looked cool, he acted like a real human, and he looked devastating in the ring. When they did run with him, the results were almost were always phenomenal. In 2010, he did one of the best things a performer can do. He left us wanting more. His later returns were more of a victim of awful booking than anything Batista did himself. He was a big man with awesome moves, a special connection to the audience, and a massive dick. What more can one ask for? Next time on The Wrestler That Was, we go back to the 80s, and we're going to deal with one of the most hated guys in company history. See you then. Nothing you've seen remotely similar. How can it be? You're so peculiar.